Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 9th, 2018. This is episode 2199 of the Survival Podcast. And it is listener feedback show. That means it's all stuff that came to me by email from you, the audience. And that means if you're like, hey, I want to talk about other stuff than what Jack's talking about today... You need to get in your email and send me a question, an article, a point, an opinion, and put TSPC in the subject line. And then you can alter the course of the show. I put this show to the point of three days a week. We are directly under the command of the audience. If you think about it, Monday's listener feedback show. Uh, Thursday is a listener call show. And Friday is an expert counsel show. All three of those shows are driven 100% by feedback and questions from the audience. Occasionally I may cherry-pick something out of the news or something, but 99% of the content comes from you three out of five days a week. And that means that if you don't like what you're getting, you need to tell me what you want to hear, and you just might do it. I say that because we're going to have a radical alteration of the schedule this week, or this week and next week. I haven't decided yet. I think it's going to be this week. So here's the deal. Last week, due to continued technical gremlins on uh, interviews, I punted the interview, and so that put me in a position of double booking. Well, I also punted Stephen Harris uh, last week to this week because I didn't want to have one of the generator shows have screwed up audio. That's just a nightmare. So I've got that taken care of now. So here's what I've got this week. I've got a regular interview of the week. I've got the Stephen Harris bug out trailer interview tomorrow, but additionally, on top of that, Lynn Albright, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. She, of course, is the mother of Ross Albright, who's doing Double Life Without Parole for building a website. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important that her story get out. So tomorrow I'm doing two interviews, and then Wednesday I'm doing an interview. That pretty much means that we will have three interviews this week and the Expert Council show. So I wanted to let you know that up front. So while we're in the uh, the, the, the world of, of making announcements right now, let me uh, give you another little call-out here. I'd love to hear from someone that would be interested in doing this. So I have um, an upcoming vacation, and I'm not sure of the exact dates off the top of my head. And I'll have to get with Dorothy on this, but it's either the third or fourth week in June thereabouts. It's about a 10-day period and I am going to be away from the farm. Our initial plan was to have my young farmhand watch after things, and after watching his performance over the past few months, I am not comfortable with him doing the job. He freaks out way too easily, so I'm once again looking for a homestead sitter during our annual vacation. This time we will be going to Florida come hell or high water, and I mean that. Uh, here's what the deal will be. Since we don't have the ducks anymore, it's not a lot of work. It's pretty much checking all the aquaponics systems uh, once a day, making sure that everything's clear and running and opening up some valves and resetting them to make sure nothing clogs. Uh, probably doing a bit of watering that there'll be a schedule for, checking on the chickens and the quail, and taking care of the dogs. It will require someone that's going to spend the night here because the dog, the old dog especially, Max the Shepherd, does not make it through the night without having to go to the bathroom. So you will be waking up sometime very early in the morning let the dogs out if you, if you take this position. Uh, it will pay 
50 bucks a day to not do very much work, and it will be like being paid to be on vacation because you will have disposal uh, at your disposal my entire property to hang out in, uh, my back porch with my newly installed kitchen, uh, our hot tub, our pool. It's not a bad gig. It does require 10 days of commitment. If you work from home, it's really good because it's kind of like double dipping on getting paid. Uh, if you're interested in this, Uh, put TSPC Vacation in the subject line, send it to me and let me know, and I'll get dates back to you. If you maybe couldn't do the whole 10 days but could do a part, I am open to having like two different people do one do a handoff to the other. I don't really prefer that because the person who does this that's going to be on the first rotation will come here and get completely briefed for a day. Uh, and you, you know, it, again, it, it's, a, it's a pretty good deal. I think to get paid 50 bucks a day to basically hang out in a pretty awesome place and uh, and take care of some animals, which is very very low maintenance. It's not like you got to stay here all day. Uh, I've had people do this before that Uber during the day that are local and they're here in the morning, come by in the afternoon to check on things, come back in the evening and spend the night here. So it, it, it's it's open to something like that, but it does require on site um, overnight. So it is kind of that type of thing. If you're interested, again, TSPC Vacation, the subject line, and we'll get back in touch with you with the exact dates and see if it works out. But, you know, and it's if you're we've had people do this before that homeschool their kids. It works out really great. Yeah, I mean, if you're a homeschooler and you want to make it a project or something, it is in the summer, but homeschool is whenever you want to school. Uh, that's, that's something that I'm open to, too, as long as it's, you know, kids that are old enough to be trusted around animals. That's, that's the big thing. All right, so... With that, uh, before we get into uh, your feedback today, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. They are my go-to source for everything and anything herbal. Uh, I am a big believer in turning to nature first when it comes to um, minor acute injuries, stressors, and illnesses, and, and long-term Um, chronic things as well. I mean, it seems to be the two places that alternative medicine makes a lot of sense. I've always said if I have a yield sign on my spleen, please take me to a surgeon, right? If I get in a car wreck and I have, you know, uh, the steering wheel going through my head or something like that, I want to go to the doctor. If I have cancer, honest to God, I am going to consider some alternative treatments, but I'm also going to consider the best that modern medicine has. And, and there's many things like that. But there's a lot of things that I've found that people... Uh, use pharmaceuticals for long term, and they don't really get any relief. In fact, the side effects are worse than the condition itself, and it's you know something that's not life threatening or what have you. And, and a gentler approach, it may take a while to work, but with herbs, often is very very effective. The problem is in the world of herbal medicine, you have snake oil salesmen. You know, take this, it'll cure cancer or whatever. You know, uh, was it what was the big craze a while ago? And really, herbs. It was just an example of this type of thing. Uh, the uh, coral calcium nonsense and colloidal silver and all this other crap and the dude turned himself purple. You know, you need straight shooters in this world. And, and that's what you get at Western Botanicals. They don't make any ridiculous claims. They don't make any claims at all. They make the herbs that are, that are beneficial available to you in either whole herb form or in formulas. And you can get help from them if you need help ordering or something like that where a real person will answer a real phone and really talk to you because they really care that you're a real person on the other end. That's the kind of customer service you get from Western Botanicals. Been with us eight out of ten years that we've been on the air. That's pretty impressive. And they give their discount membership program away for free for first year and half price after that. That'll save you 25% on everything. If you use a lot of herbals, that alone could pay for your MSB membership if you're a member of the Support Brigade. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. If it's legal and herbal, 
Yeah, they have it. Next up today, ready-made resources. A company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. Great pricing, great service, great products, and I said everything you need, and I meant it. Alternatives, uh, energy products, uh, long-term food storage uh, uh, materials to do your own long-term storage food, long-term storage food, tactical, practical guns to gardens. They say what they do and do what they say, and they've got it all for you at readymaderesources.com. Okay, so the, the first story I have today is one of those ones that it, it's from a guy named Len, and it makes you want to go, nah, something, something, Tide Pod eating, moron, idiot, morons. But in a way, I, there might actually be an upside to it, though it's a thin, thin upside line. Uh, title of the article this is on Space.com. A third of young millennials are confused about this incontrovertible fact. The Earth is not flat. Here's some uh, excerpts from the article. Um, only 66% of 18- to 24-year-olds in the U.S. are confident the world is round, according to a new national survey. The findings don't necessarily indicate an epidemic of flat-earthism. Only 4% of 18- to 24-year-old age groups said they actually believe the world is flat. Rather, there seem to be a relatively large number of this age group who are willing to entertain doubts. 9% said they had always believed the world was round, but recently were having doubts. 5% said they had always believed the world is flat, but are becoming skeptical of that conclusion. And 16% just weren't sure. Uh, flat Earth philosophy has been around since the 19th century, but has recently blown up online, particularly on YouTube and Twitter. Believers post videos and memes arguing the case for a flat Earth and posting conspiracy theories to explain everything away that makes it clear the planet is in fact a globe. And it goes on to what flat earthers believe and all. I I say there's an upside to this, but it's like I said, it's a very thin, possibly imaginary line to try to make myself feel better. But my one hope in this is, okay, this is what they are taught in school from cradle to grave that the earth is round. And a third of them saying, well, I might, it actually, what actually gets me is the 16% that just aren't sure. They're the ones that there's possibly some hope for, right? Like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's it's retarded, honestly, to, 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 to not believe the earth is round. But what it does at least show me is questioning what they're told, which is something I'd love to see a lot more of in all people, but especially the young people out there. Now, this may be a symptom of um, laundry detergent, uh, you know, uh, overdosing. I, I don't know. Maybe it's too much Windex from all the window licking. Uh, maybe there's no hope at all in this. But I, I'd like to believe that some portion of this this group that was asked this, or at least saying, you know, it's worth questioning everything that you're told. And I also think this might be a little bit more probable reason as to why the number looks so high. Imagine this. You're 18 years old. Some guy with a clipboard is asking you, do you think the earth is round or the earth is flat? What I mean, what would you have done when you were like 17, 18 years old? I would have totally pulled the guy's chain. I would have been like, oh, man, d dude, don't you know the earth is flat? And I didn't believe that ever in my life, right? I had no belief in that ever that the earth was flat there's never been a time in my life that i've ever doubted that the earth is round i do believe that the government lies about a lot of things but the shape of the planet i i, I don't really think so i think we have enough evidence to not even question it at this point but i would have totally yanked the chain of somebody asking me that and i might even played it up put my server accent on or something like that i mean i don't know like 
why would you take that opportunity to jerk somebody around? So that may be the case as well. But I think that there is a, a surprising number of people that believe this bullshit, and what it shows is the power of media, alternative or otherwise, doesn't matter. So if, if you haven't actually looked into this, and I have just because I'm like, really, you got it? No, I got to understand what I'm dealing with here. There are a large number of, you know, they're modeled on like the 9-11 uh, documentary, online documentary type thing. And they actually make, if you suspend all belief and, and all evidence, a reasonable case that the earth could in fact be flat. Now, because, you you know, if you have an IQ with at least three digits in it, um, you, you probably aren't going to fall for it. But what you can do is you can watch this and go, that's an amazing spin. And, and I, I can't show you this because I think it's been taken down for copyright infringements many times to where the people behind them gave up. But it shows how the same information can be used to tell a completely different story. And in the example I'm going to give you is the cult movie Office Space. The cult movie Office Space. So if you're not familiar with that movie, the basic concept is it's a it's such a 90s office environment. And they're coming up on Y2K. And the main three characters in it, the one guy basically is a complete lazy ass. And he really hates what he does. He goes to a psychiatrist who hypnotizes him and basically makes him not give a shit about anything. Because he doesn't give a shit when these consultants come in that are downsizing the company, they actually fall in love with the guy. They, 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 they offer him promotion and everything. And his two buddies that are working their ass off and always had and totally committed company men, um, they are both targeted for layoffs. And because they've taken this other character, Peter, into the fold, they actually let him know that his friends are going to get laid off. And so they come up with a, a scheme which you know, goes back to Superman 3, I think, which was taking the rounded pennies off the fractional cents and depositing them into an account. And the three of them work together and get this code uploaded, and they don't think anybody will notice it because of all the Y2K work. And um, they do it, and the programmer Michael, Michael Bolton, true story is his name, there's a whole riff on that in there, um, screws something up, and instead of taking off the fractional pennies, they take off the whole pennies. And in like a week, like 300 grand ends up taken out, and they find it. And it's a comedy. The whole thing is just a ridiculous comedy based on the nonsense that goes on in cubicle environments and offices. And that's all that it is with this storyline behind it. Jennifer Aniston's in it. It's one of the few movies she's ever done where she didn't completely suck in it. Uh, it's, 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 it's a great cult movie, but it is not... A slasher thriller movie, like a like a, a you know Nightmare on Elm Street type thing, or a uh, Mike Myers type thing, right? Or even just like a good old Alfred Hitchcock. It's not a murder thing. Got it? Okay, there's no murder in it. It is, in spite of the crime committed, and it is not a cr criminal investigative type, you know, cop movie, right? It's, it doesn't do that either. That's not what it is, and it's not a romantic tryst like a chick flick. It's none of those things. Well, people took the trailer reels from the original trailer and rearranged them and put special effects in it and made a trailer that made this movie out to be a crime investigative movie. And there's the part where the consultants are talking to Peter about what he does and other people about what to do in a room. And they make it very compelling case that this is a police detective. And the one guy with the suspenders and all, he really kind of, you know, it looks like it. And if you went and saw the movie after seeing that 
trailer, you would have been disappointed, but you would not have felt like you got ripped off. You would have felt like, well, that's kind of what the story was. There's another one where it's a romantic comedy. And, and Jennifer Aniston is portrayed to be a bigger part than she is and all. And I got to tell you, that one, you would have been like, well, this is a chick flick a guy can watch. Your, your chick would not have felt that way, right? She would have been like, this is bullshit. Um, but you would have felt like, now the slasher thriller one, um, that one, you really would have been like, this is not what it was billed as. But in all three, using the same footage, different arrangements, different sound effects, different cutaways, all three sold it as being something entirely different than it was. Without anything fake. There was nothing fake in it. There was no, um, there was no additions. They all used the exact same footage arranged differently. All of it was really from the movie. A little bit of music here, a little fade in, fade out there. You know, the guy has a, a, a dream about getting busted, and they you know make that look like it's something very nefarious. The guy wakes up, freaked out about something. All of a sudden, that's the slasher thriller. The guy says he's going to set the building on fire. Milton, he and they they sell all three versions. Now, of course. They sold all four versions because the original was true to the show. Okay, this is mass media in a nutshell. I used to use those videos. I wish I would have like pulled them down so I had them and could put them like on DTube now or something where they can't be taken down um, because it was such a great lesson in marketing. It's like this is what I mean by marketing is paint. Now you got to make sure you're painting the right picture so the customer's happy after the sale. But understanding how to stack. Things so, but marketing's one thing. Telling you facts as though they're true and contorting them to mean something different than they do, even though the facts themselves are true, that's your news media. Everything you need to know about it is there. And these these mockumentaries is what they really feel like to me about flat Earth syndrome. Uh, I think they very well illustrate that point that you can, if you watch them long enough, you'll start to go, well, maybe that's being dumb. Right, but that's that's the power of this type of media, and it, 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 if when you see that the, the the lesson in it is just because it comes from the you know from the alternative media, independent media, online media doesn't mean it's true either. And the truth is, I think most of the people, maybe not all, but most of the people behind these uh, flat Earth uh, documentaries know full well what they've done. They know full. They know full well what they've done. They don't believe this for a minute. I do believe it's creating a, a significant number of morons that believe the documentary. A very significant number of them, uh, and it's creating a cascading effect of lunacy. Uh, but at least, again, my my one hope is that at least it's showing that our our younger generation is starting to at least question what they're told. That would be a good first step, and then hopefully. They get past this one pretty quick. Again, if they put the Tide Pods away, that might help. So this next one comes from John. John sends me an article that is um, on USA Today. Tax policy states with the highest and lowest taxes, and this is this is what we call republicanism in action here. So let me give you a little bit about the states. It's a fairly long article. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to read the the upshot and some bullet points. The states with the highest taxes, number 11, Vermont, 10.3% of your income, okay? Oregon, highest tax, number 10, 10.3% of your income. Rhode Island, 10.8% of your income. Minnesota, number 8, 10.8% of your income. Maryland, uh, number 7, 10.9% of income. 
goes to the state, not the federal taxes. This is all state taxes all added up. California, 11% of an average person's income in California goes to the state of California. Illinois, 11%. Wisconsin, 11%. And I guess there's fractions in here how they rank this that they're not giving you on the bottom line. New Jersey, 12.2%. Connecticut, 12.6%. If you live in Connecticut, 12.6% of your income goes to the state of Connecticut. New York, 12.7%. What about the states with the lowest uh, impact on your taxes? Number 11, Oklahoma, 8.6%. Now, I want to start out with some. Oklahoma is the number 11 lowest, and it's 8.6%. Vermont is the number 11 highest, 10.3%. It's a little bit more, 2.1% separates those two. Not much. All right, so let's see how that continues down as I scroll back down here. Um, Mississippi, 8.6% of income. South Carolina, 8.4% of income. Nevada, 8.1% of income. New Hampshire, Liberty Forum, Free State Project, 7.9% goes to the state of New Hampshire. Louisiana, 7.6% goes to the state. Texas, my home state, fans ourselves being quite free, still the state of Texas manages to take 7.6% of our income in taxes. Tennessee, 73 Wyoming, 7.1. South Dakota, 7.1. Alaska, 6.5. I, I want to ask you an honest question here. Uh, let's look at Texas and, and Wyoming. Texas, number 5, 7.6. Wyoming, 7.1. If you had a choice to live in either state, and you, you boiled down the numbers that they were going to affect you that way, because there's some variances we'll talk about. Say, would you make a decision based on taxes at all between Wyoming and Texas? 7.6, 7.1. I don't think most people would. A fractional percentile is not enough. Okay, so if your choice was between Alaska at 6.5 and Texas at 7.6, it's a 1.1% difference in how much to take of your income in the form of taxes. Would you choose Alaska over Texas if all things were equal? And I mean, there's weather in that and all kinds of things. But would you make the decision? Let's let's make a totally different comparison. Let's take two states that are very very similar in climate, geography, etc. Let's take North and South Carolina. Let's hypothetically say that North Carolina was a seven percent theft, and South Carolina was a six percent theft. Would you make the decision over one percent? I think most people would say, you know, 1%, given they all are thieves, um, and I do have some control over how that actually happens with sales tax and some other things, probably not. Okay, would you do it over 4%? Let's look at the, the number one state on the list for the highest taxes is New York, 12.7%. And Oklahoma at 8.6%, the, the 11th to the lowest. That's almost 4%. Would you make the decision over 4%? I think a lot of people would. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do. There's more to it than that. So let's look at somebody right in the middle of the best, my state, Texas, which I can speak on a lot about. Um, our income per capita is $46,000 a year. See, now the one thing is this, this ranking is very, very neutral, because even though they give you these other stats, it's based on a percent of income, right? But we are basically the 25th highest or 25th lowest, considering it's 50 states. So we're right dead center in per capita income. 
Now, I know Texas better than the people that don't live here, so I can tell you part of that is skewed. We have plenty of people make far less than forty-six grand a year, and we have plenty of people here that make a hell of a lot more. There are a lot of you know one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollar incomes in this state that are employees. I'm not just talking about entrepreneurs here, and there are a lot of entrepreneurs here that do better. So that skews that number and brings it up higher than it might really be. I mean, it would be interesting to take the top ten percent off of these states and see what their per capita income is then. That would be interesting. But state income tax collections, zero. You pay zero tax on your income in the state of Texas. Property tax collections per capita average $1,731. I pay a lot more. 13th highest. We have high property taxes in the state of Texas, even in unincorporated areas like I'm in. Part of that is because our real estate has done so well, though. I mean, that number has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And that's because more and more people are moving here. That's also Republicanism. People choosing to be somewhere because the economy is good because of the regulatory climate. General sales tax collections, $1,151, which is the fifth highest. We have the fifth highest uh, collections of sales tax per person in this state on sales tax in the country, even though we are the f number five is the lowest impact of taxes. How does that work? It works a lot of ways. Number one, sales tax is paid on the sale of goods and services. Well, actually, in Texas, goods only at the final point of sale. So it's a sales tax is on a single transaction. It's not like a VAT tax they have in Europe where every time the item is sold, it's taxed again. So let's take a product, let's say a, oh, I don't know, a, uh, a microphone, like I'm talking into right now. And let's say instead of buying it on Amazon, I bought it at the audio video store downtown. Okay, let's say that it was sold to a wholesaler in the state of Texas that paid a tax on it. That's a VAT tax. And then the wholesaler sells it to uh, a second-tier distributor who pays a tax on it, who sells it to the retail establishment that pays a tax when they buy it, and then they sell it to me. And, of course, I pay all the tax. It's the final end user, customer. Where a sales tax is only on that final transaction. But if you have a state with a booming economy, people making lots of money, people spending lots of money, sales tax receipts are going to be high. On top of it, sales tax receipts in Texas are high. Or sales tax isn't high. It's 8.5%. And what this shows us is Republicanism is not working as well as it should. The federal government has done a lot to neuter it with federal income taxes. That's one way that's done. And then they've recently actually done something to empower it. And that is by reducing exemptions. So you can only, re you can only re use a, a deduction of so much in property tax and sales tax and state income tax now. It used to be unlimited. You could declare all of it. That lets states like New York and Illinois get away with jacking up their taxes. Because at least the person paying the taxes to the state of New York or, or, or Illinois, if they liked their state, felt like, well, they get it instead of the federal government. Now, not so much. This increases federalism. Uh, or, I'm sorry, republicanism. See, a lot of people don't know what republicanism is. Republican is the republic form of government. And republic made up of member states. Each state is to have a, a very large amount of autonomy. And that's been reduced over the years. So much so... That if we go all the way to the bottom, 6.5% of your income goes to the state of Alaska. And to the worst of the worst, 
with New York, 12.7. There's only a 6% difference there. And a lot of people say, well, that's big. I don't think it's big enough. Don't you think it should be possible for a state in this, in this republic to be taxing its citizens at a rate of, let's say, 2 to 4%? And you got to start asking yourself why it isn't. Well, maybe it's because governments always grow and always want more and always want to take more and always will figure out ways to take more. That's one way. But I think the other side is the overreach of the federal government. And many of the things that states do are mandated by the federal government without federal funding. And it also shows the, the, what I call the squeeze the balloon theory. So let's say you blew up like a balloon like a guy makes a balloon animal out of. Really, really long one. Maybe a bit bigger around. Maybe like summer sausage diameter around. And you cut taxes at the state level. Imagine grabbing one end of that balloon and squeezing it really tight. Did any air actually come out of the balloon? What happens? The balloon gets bigger elsewhere. In fact, I have another article I'm not going to use today. I will link to it for you, though. I might cover it next week. Um, but the, the fact is there's many states now where their income taxes are probably going to go up without lawmakers doing anything. Because a lot of the states have actually played a, a clever trick. They've linked their state income tax in legislation to federal income tax rates. And when federal income tax rates go down, their rates automatically go up, further reducing republicanism. Why is this a problem? Because we're a republic. And our constitution actually requires that states themselves have a republican form of government. But see, we've actually made the word republican a bad word because, well, for half the country, republicans are evil. Well, the Republican Party has absolutely nothing to do with the concept of a republic. And we're not teaching kids this stuff in school. Instead, we're teaching them, apparently, how not to eat Tide Pods with you know classes on, like, this is a Tide Pod, don't eat this. But maybe it's time we start requiring more of our people. And, and understanding this would be a good place to start. I, I think it's actually highly concerning to me. Now, if there was uh, uh, you know an average spread of 6%, uh, okay. But for a state like New York to only be taking, a, on average, about 4% more of the income of its citizens than the average other state, and when you realize how insane New York is, one of the problems with Republicanism, and what I'd call like a team mentality, like I'm on a Texas team, I'm on a New Hampshire team, I'm on the Florida team, I'm on the Tennessee team, I'm on the California is that as long as you're better than, right, then you're good. So, uh, uh, Texas, I mean, it's just, they steal 7% of our income and their property taxes are in the fifth highest in the country, but uh, we're better than New York by almost double, so we're good. See, and this is, this is my problem with America as a whole and the way that we are marketed to by our government. Whenever you see our government doing tyrannical things, becoming more and more socialist, more and more statist, and when you voice your opinion about it, depending on which side you piss off, the left or the right, you get the same message from either side. And especially when you piss them both off, all of a sudden they become united in their message. Which is, well, we're better than Somalia. Move to Somalia. Or, you know, we're better than this or we're better than that. See, being better than someone does not mean you're good enough. I, I used to do this. I was in sales. And we had things, and I worked for Fluke Networks, which is not the voltmeter side. That's industrial. So this is Fluke Networks. This is the computer networking side of things. High-end, very expensive equipment. You, you know, you got people paying $4,500 for a cable test or maybe $12,000 for an OTDR kit. That, that kind of cost. And some of your customers are buying a dozen 
in, in one deal we did was almost a half a million dollars to a government entity. Um, it's a lot of money, and, and people expect service and quality, and, you know, if something's not right, you fix it, or maybe you give them a little extra attention. And there were times when we would go to war with our own company at the corporate level and go, hey, you know, these people, and they would say, well, we're better than Agilent. Really? Really? Like, that's what I'm supposed to go back to my customer with? Like, okay, look, we know that we did this and this was wrong, and we know that we suck in this, this way, But we suck less than everybody else, so that's good enough. And, and this is the marketing to our children and to our people that society has done. And it's, it, it's, it's the monkeys as well, right? I don't want to tell the whole story, but the basic concept is these scientists take these monkeys, they put them in a room, there's bananas at the top of a pole, all four monkeys try to go up the pole, they spray the monkeys down with water, eventually the monkeys won't go up the pole. You pull the, one monkey out, put a new monkey in, he adds his ass up the pole, the other monkeys hold him down. Right, And then if you do this long enough and keep taking monkeys out, eventually you get four monkeys in there. None of them will go up the pole. None of them have ever been sprayed. Nobody knows why. All they know is the other monkeys all held them down, and the pole's bad. And you got the monkeys policing themselves at this point. And that's what happens. This type of mentality that, well, love it or leave it. You know? No, that's not how America works. At least it's not supposed to. When somebody says love it or leave it, that is the most anti-American thing you can say. There is nothing more anti-American than love it or leave it, and people get sucked into it. Well, the concept of America is many things, and one of them is to be this form of republic, where each state is its own laboratory of liberty. And the goal should be, how little government can we have and succeed? How little government can we have and succeed? That should be the goal of every state in this country. To do as little as possible to get the maximum result. Because it, from a financial standpoint, makes the most sense. If we don't need government to do something, why should we, why should we force people to do it? From a moral standpoint, taking other people's stuff is wrong. Okay, That's something we learn in kindergarten. Taking stuff from other people against their will is wrong. So tax is taking people's stuff against their will. Period. In other words, tax is theft. I know people get triggered by that. Morons! Whatever. No, but it's theft. And the best case that can be made by the statist is that it's necessary theft. That we need to steal money to do these things. I don't agree, but okay, fine. If that's the contention, then shouldn't we steal as little as possible? Shouldn't we mitigate the theft wherever we can? But what has actually become the goal of states? To create as much government as possible. If you think about it, that's the truth. Otherwise, you wouldn't only have a five-point spread between some of the worst and some of the best in, in income. And the, and, and the median spread is only about 2% to 3%. In a system predicated on competing for people to come there. Just my thoughts. Anyway, you can read the whole article if you want to, and I'll put a link to that other article as well. That other article, by the way, is entitled uh, Federal Tax Cuts T Trigger Stealth Tax Hikes. So you can check that out if you want to know more. But it shows more. The further, actually, in a, an indirect way, it actually may increase um, republicanism. For instance, if, if Illinois or New York's taxes automatically go higher because of a federal tax cut, that will increase the spread and actually, hopefully, hasten their demise, in my opinion. Uh, let's take another one. 
getting off the taxes and politics altogether uh, from J.D. in Arizona. Is there a reason not to use tree debris as many who culture mounds and possibly swale berms? Uh, if I had an industrial tipper, I would try to chip up a bunch of mesquite. Uh, we got in our new homestead and just wood chip mulch the crap out of areas. I don't, and I am just wondering if I should look at burying trunks, branches, hugel mound, or even mini swales. I live in Arizona. We only get around 11 inches of rain, so we could use the water retention if it's designed properly and the fungi benefits as well. Or would I be better off renting a large chipper or even selling mesquite wood for projects, fire pits, and buying, burying mulch? Uh, trying to make use of the waste surplus, depending on how you look at it. Thanks for all you do, J.D. in Arizona. Well, first of all, J.D., remember those those mesquite trees are actually quite a reasonable food production crop, at least many species, uh, and those pods can be ground up and are quite useful, so check into that. Um, I am not big on making hugel swales. I am very, very anti-hugel swale in most instances. Um, you did mention the term mini-swale. I'm okay with this. Um, I am okay with, depending on the, the volume, if you're going to do, first of all, let's go back to swales. Um, let's start out with swales and uh, the public service announcement around swales. To swale or not to swale, that is the question, and the answer is a, a big giant, it depends. Please do not install swales on your property because everybody else did. Understand where, why, how, and its place in the design system. A swale, for those that don't know, is a ditch on contour, meaning it is a level ditch that spreads water and soaks it into the landscape. Mark Shepard does not call them a ditch. He calls them a swale and berm system, and he calls them either a soaking swale or a diversion swale. Uh, a diversion uh, swale and berm. So either it's moving water on a slight grade, 1%, or it's a complete level and it's a spreader. All right, so that's what a swale is, and I can't go deeper than that today for those that aren't familiar with the term. So the concept of swale and berm means we take dirt out of the ditch and we put it to the downhill side. This creates a loosely compacted mound that, that soaks water up into the berm. And the top, the a concept of hugel culture is we take these tree debris, uh, slash and what have you, and we build um, piles of them, and then we bury them with earth. And the geniuses in permaculture that always want to combine everything and not everything should be combined said, well, why don't we take the trees and lay them in front of the swales and bury the, the, the wood with the dirt and then we have a hugel swale. Um, if you have a small amount of tree debris spread out across a very long swale, so that we're talking about, a let's say, a single layer of wood debris uh, and you do that, I don't actually think you've done much, but you have gotten rid of the debris and you probably will start a bit of a fungal kick and organic matter kick and, and things like that. So it's not harmful, but it probably doesn't do the benefit that people think it does. If you make a true hugel mound, and I have a whole article on this and I'll, I'll link to it today. It was on put, put on Permaculture News um, and you build a large barrier of organic matter and then you bury that and you get a significant rain event and i know you only get 11 inches of rain a year in arizona but a lot of times you get like five inches at one time so if you have a large swale system and you get a major infiltration rain event and you super saturate the ground you have all this wood what happens to wood when you put wood in water well let's tune in real quick to uh to Monty Python to find out what happens to uh, wood when we put it in water. We have found the witch. May we burn her? Burn Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Yeah, she looks like a witch. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
forward. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose. It's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch. Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 no. Yes! 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 A bit! A bit! A bit! She has got a wart! <laughs> what makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt? We got better. There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Are there? Huh? What are they? Tell us! Tell me, what do you do with witches? <laughs> What do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her! Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, does a wood sink in water? No, 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 it floats. It floats. Throw her into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Exactly. So, logically, if she... Weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore. A witch! A witch! We shall use my larger scales. Okay, so uh, pop culture humor aside there, uh, or maybe cult humor aside there, uh, wood floats. And if we get a major infiltration of rain into a swale, in the lower side, uh, berm, and water underneath it, what happens to the wood? Well, it floats, and uh, mesquite floats quite well. It's a heavy wood, but it floats quite well. It actually takes quite a while to break down, which is another issue here. Um, and the entire berm can go washing down the road, and this, this has really happened before, and it's detailed in my article exactly what happened, and it wasn't good, and, and what have you. So I'm not a fan of a full-scale hoogle swale, right? But... Again, if you just have this spare material and you're just going to bury it under your berms, I don't think that hurts at all, assuming that you're designing the swales right in the first place. As far as hugel culture, I think you might be in a really great environment for hugel culture, and if you have the equipment or the time and what have you, burying this material in a hugel mound sounds like a great idea. Now, my personal belief, if you have the right site for this to work, because not all design elements work on all sites, a multi-swale system with hoogles in the inner swale, which is between the swale systems, is a great idea. However, hoogle mounds are not a low-maintenance um, system. That's something you need to understand if you're going to do hoogles. Uh, because they're mounded earth with wood cores, and they do wick moisture quite well, they do become quite weedy if they're not maintained. So that's another thing to think about here. But there's no reason not to use the material in some sort of earthworks, if that works for you. But I really think you should think about the totality of your design. And I hear a little bit of this in you. you got your new place and you're excited you want to get going fast. All right. 
I, I really think, speaking from experience, when I got my place with a lot of land that I could really do something with, that it makes sense for the very first thing you to do is design your zone one. Design your zone one, which is your herb gardens, your high maintenance, the stuff just out. Walk out of your door and look down and design the square foot under your feet and then design the three square feet around that and design the you know nine square feet around that and then design the 12 square feet around that and then design the adjacent 12 square feet and then design the adjacent 12 square feet and then design the next 36 square feet out and then maybe it's time to start thinking about bigger things. Please do this first. Button down the basics first. If you're going to do a chicken coop, that's kind of your zone two. Okay, then where's the chickens? How do they play in the system? And if you end up with a larger system and the chickens need to move through it, we can design that in later. Let's pull back and design these things first. As far as selling the mesquite, if you have a market for it, I think it's a better use. Uh, it is a fantastic fuel wood. It is, let me say it again, it is a fantastic fuel wood, very high BTUs. It is a fantastic cooking wood. If I had a giant pile of mesquite chunks, I would be very happy. I mean, really, it is one of the best things to cook on in the world. The heat you get off, it gives you excellent sears. You can bring it down to a smolder and cook slow and long. The flavor is out of this world. So I think that it makes a better fuel or craft wood than a hugelkor. Because the last thing I want to say, hugel culture and anything that uses decaying organic matter in it has a balance that's like a you know you're trying to hit. Uh, the extreme uh, slow breakdown would be something like black locust. Black locust can, can take a hundred years to break down. I mean that's why it makes such good fence post material and other things like that, tool handles, etc. Uh, the wood itself is is made uh, primarily of uh, antifungal components. It, it resists breakdown. The other side of things would be something like uh, sweet gum. You bury a giant sweet gum log. And in a year, it's you dig it up, and it, like you can just stick your hand through what's left of it. Uh, and 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 that's not to say that it doesn't. It's not useful. In fact, I've talked to people that have used it for hugel culture, and it's worked really, really well. Except the mound collapses a lot by the second year, but they get incredible growth and and long term fungal inoculation and things out of it like that. But it's the other extreme, the rapid breakdown. Right? This would be things like white pine would be another one that breaks down really, really fast. Um, and then there's some allopathic stuff like cedar that may or may not be as bad as they say. Um, but those are your extremes. Mesquite is not to the locust extreme, but it's up there. Uh, so it's a, it's a very long-term breakdown. And, and what that means to me is if there's a higher purpose for the wood, let's go there. Um, as far as running a shredder, it's also hard as hell. It's thorny. It's kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. So you're talking about a fairly expensive rental. You're not renting the one that you would buy if you didn't rent it. You know, like the, the $700 to $1,000 machine is not going to get it done. You're talking about something that you tow behind a truck. And I think when I checked on renting something like that here, the cost was about $1,300 a day. $1,300 a day. I'm not saying not to do it. If you can get it for less, maybe you do. You know, if it was $600 a day, that would be great. But what I would say is get all of that material. Pre-cut the size and establish it in an area, if you're going to do the chipper thing, and go get the tripper and have it set up so it's like it's an, it's on when you get there. You know, It's not it's not what we're going to cut and, and chip and shred the day that we bring the chipper shredder here. Get that material ready to go, pre 
sorted into different sizes and what have you, pre-cut, pre-chopped, whatever, so that it's ready to go into that chipper shredder. You know, go by the rental place, take a look at it, get an idea of what the capabilities are, know that before you rent it, and then go ahead and do that. That would also be a very high use of the material as far as I'm concerned. But you're not going to get as much as you think you are. It's amazing how small an amount of wood chips you get from a very amount, large amount of slash. Because you're not going to be chipping your bowl wood. You're just not, right? So that's the other thing, too. I mean, I remember the first time we ever rented a shredder, I cut down like three pine trees, pretty big ones. And uh, they weren't pines like you're thinking, like when I say that. They really were more like a fir tree. So more like the Christmas tree type things. One was severely damaged. And I think I took down a maple as well. Really, really bushy tree that had been damaged. And uh, we rented a chipper shredder. We thought, well, we'll mulch the hell out of the place. And we pretty much mulched the area that the trees were in. Uh, that's all we got out of it. It's, it's amazing how little you get. And that's why people do it. Uh, you know, not the mulch people, but the people that trip and shred because they got to get rid of the product. Because that huge amount of mass has to be a pretty small amount. So I would put the order of highest use in craft material, cooking and fuel and firewood, uh, mulch, and then buried debris. And I would try to think about it that way. And please, please, please heed my advice and uh, try to design that Zone 1 airtight first. Uh, next up, uh, let's take another one. Oh, and real quick, again, I'll have that article about uh, Hugo Swales, uh, which was thoroughly reviewed by Jeff Lawton and completely agreed with, by the way, um, for you to check out. I really don't want people to make that mistake. Here's another growing question, and this is the one that just keeps coming back over and over and over again. Harold says, um, I'm concerned about food safety growing vegetables in raised beds atop a septic field. My better half, Rita, is a member of the MSB. We enjoy listening to your podcast together. Anyways, we bought a house together last September in southern Jersey. If it ever stops snowing, we're going to put together some raised beds and grow vegetables. We had good luck with tomatoes, peppers, zucchinis, cukes, string beans. Uh, we had raised beds in our previous rental and dismantled the cedar frames. We still have the wood. Here's the issue. The property's on seven acres, almost entirely wooded. Uh, the only clear area is a septic field, which is newly constructed last year. The construction was done according to local code standards, was inspected and signed off by a local engineering firm, and the township, all good. I called the duty pit longer term, planning to clear some land, but will take some doing to get a new chainsaw, etc. Mainly concerned about food safety, raised vegetables over a septic field. Do you have any of your subject matter experts, or you have an opinion on this? Many regards. Thanks, Harold. Okay, so... Here's, here's the deal. Whenever you ask this question, of contamination, you're going to die. Ah! Okay, first of all, let's understand, if we're talking about a typical leach field here instead of a, a, an anaerobic system where it's like a sprinkler system, the water is discharged under the ground, okay? And there's very little risk of, of, of any real danger there. The systems are made up of two tanks, and you have your, your crap tank and your water tank. And everything goes in the crap tank, overflows to the water tank, that overflows to the leach field. The water that comes out of that second tank is remarkably clear, though I certainly wouldn't drink it. But it's going through the earth. And unless you live in a place like I do with a rock bed underneath you, and you probably don't in New Jersey, it's primarily going down. Though a significant amount does evaporate as well in wet the area. You're probably looking at a number uh, in the neighborhood of 12 inches to 30 inches. And in New Jersey, you're probably more like 30 inches deep. Because otherwise, your leach field would freeze in the winter, and that would not be good. So you're probably looking at a neighborhood about three feet down where your pipes are. At least two. At least two. 
So what is the real danger of contamination of anything other than a root vegetable? And that's pretty low. Okay. The general advice is if you're growing uh, leaf vegetables like lettuce and stuff, well, when it rains, it can splash up. So mulch, I still think the risk is pretty low. It's still pretty low. And you always should wash your produce when you bring it in the house. Um, so I, I, other than root vegetables, I personally don't have much of a concern. And if, if there was this rash of people getting E. coli infections from growing food over leach fields, you'd hear about it because people do it all the time. Trust me, people do it all, especially in rural America. It's like a thing. People go do it on purpose because you've got this water and, and fertility that's down there that the plant roots are able to access. And your tomato or your pepper plant is not going to clog your leach field. If it does, it was done wrong in the first place. <sighs> that said, there are some other things to be concerned with here. You said raised beds. It depends on how many and how much surface area you're talking about compared to the total. One of the concerns with raised beds is now we've increased the material on top of the, the leach field. And when we do that, what happens is we reduce that evaporation that I talked about, and that can cause problems in our leach field. However, if you're looking at, like, uh, let's say a standard leach field, maybe 60 foot by 60 foot, at least that big, uh, 360 square feet. If we're talking about putting in, you know, four four by eights, it's uh, 32, 64, what, 96, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about 96 square feet there, right? So 96 square feet out of um, you're probably not even beginning to remotely affect actual evaporation this would make me want to take some consideration as to where in it, and I would want to move toward the edges the outside edges not the initial entry point of your flow and then how does that fit into the rest of the property but I, I you know the, the thing is like I, I'm good at reading through the lines so you know, one of the lines here it's highlighted in yellow. The only clear area is the septic field, which was newly constructed last year. Hmm. The only clear area. You might have a better suited area that might be worth doing some clearing. I'm just saying. And remember, we really want our vegetable gardens to be in zone one if possible and zone two at the furthest out. And if you don't know zone thinking in permaculture, the higher the number, the further from where you, where you reside. And zone one is a place that we put our feet on every day. Zone two is we put our feet on it a couple times a week. Zone three is we put our feet on it maybe a couple times a month, etc. Right? Unless we have a reason to be going there. So the vegetable garden needs to be something close to the house. So it, it may be quite possible, just spitballing here. But a lot of times, you have a septic system that works like this. You got your water tanks. And you got a pipe that runs out of your second tank into your leach field. And there's actually a fairly significant space between the tanks and the lateral lines of the leach field. It doesn't go straight. To, so the water travels a distance. And there's this interim space between the tanks and the actual leach field that's closer to the house. Not always, but a lot of times. Okay. That space is not over the leach field. If the leach field's open, it probably is open too. It's probably closer to the house, and most new gardeners, most conventional gardeners, want to put the garden away from the house. Want away from the house, out there by the fence, lined up with the fence, etc. Which means you spend less time taking care of it, you spend less time weeding it, 
You spend less time seeing that there's a problem. You don't harvest as much. You don't use as much. And more food goes to waste. And as food goes to waste, you actually attract more pests. See? So, think about that, too. I'm not opposed to doing this over the leach field. You can't completely cover it with raised beds. You will cause evaporation issues. I would not grow root vegetables. And I'm not going to answer this one again for quite a long time. <laughs> Hope that helps you. This one was one that came in for an expert council member, and I just am not going to let it go there. And I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, it's for either Erica Strauss or Keith Snow. Bottom line up front, what are the considerations in reusing plastic bottles for long-term water storage? And there's this big diatribe about bug growth and nastiness and infections and all. Stop. Stop. Just stop. Th those of you that worry about this, just stop. Kale, who sent me this, stop. Stop being a germaphobe. Stop being a bugaphobe. Don't do stupid things and make yourself sick, but stop. Okay. If you take your heavy-duty plastic bottle, not your crappy little one, right? Your, your, your crappy, like, thin-walled plastic, your, the stuff I recommend, your two-liter soda bottles, your Arizona iced tea, the apple juice bottles that we use for fermenters, okay? If you take that and you rinse it out really, really good with hot tap water, you're probably good. What do I do for a higher level? Okay, the first thing I do is I fill it with, with water and I set it on the shelf overnight and let it soak. And then I dump it out. Why? Because that helps really get the apple stink out of the apple bottle or the Arizona tea stink out of the air so that when I drink the water later, it doesn't have this faint background of apple juice iced tea, whatever. Okay? So I do that, dump it out. Then I take my electric kettle and I bring some water close to boiling to where it's going, but it doesn't quite boil yet, so it doesn't really kind of melt the freaking container. So you're looking at water, it's like 160 to 180 degrees. You dump a few ounces of it in there, put the lid on it, and swirl it around in there, and then carefully open it, because you might get a little spray, and dump it out. Do you know what's alive in there? Absolutely flipping nothing. Fill it up with tap water, put it on the shelf, go on with your freaking life. That's how you store water. No more need than that. If you're a germaphobe, and if you're like, but I don't know if it's going to... And I'm, I'm, I'm not really making fun of you, Kale. I've just got this so many... I'm 10 years into this. I've heard this so long. I'd be dead now if half the things people worry about were even remotely true. I'd be dead a thousand times over. I'd be a mound somewhere with things growing out of me by now. Okay, if you're really worried about it, take a single freaking drop of chlorine bleach, put it in there, and have your water taste like shit, but you know you'll be safe. Put the lid on it, stick it on the shelf. Okay? If you're really worried but you don't want your water to taste like chlorine bleach, put a, a tablespoon of chlorine bleach in your bottle, fill it up with water, put the lid on it, and let it sit there overnight. In the morning, rinse it out with hot tap water, fill it up, put it on the shelf. If you want to take either one of those extra steps, fine. I'll tell you the truth. The reason I do the hot water is not even a concern over contamination. It really isn't. The reason I do the hot water is because it helps take the last bit of residue out of the bottle so there's no foul taste. Water can only go bad if there's something in it to go bad and something to feed the thing that grows. The minuscule amount of residual material that could be left in a well-rinsed bottle isn't sufficient to feed crap that, by the way, isn't there because the product that came out of that bottle was what, repeat after me, pasteurized. Right? It's a pasteurized product. It's a shelf-stable product. Okay? 
You're going to now fill it with water out of the sink, which if your water has nastiness in the sink, you already have a problem. We're going to fill it to the top. There's no air space. We're going to seal it. Again, this is one of those things. If this was the health risk that people think it was, you'd hear about it. When's the last time you heard, man stores water in apple juice bottles on shelf, gets E. coli, and dies? Story at six. You've never heard it because it doesn't happen. Those are some ways you can mitigate this if you have personal concerns. But I'm going to tell you the truth again. You could probably take the bottle, shake it up with hot top water, dump it out, fill it up, stick it on the shelf, and be fine. Serious to God. Hand to God. All right? Uh, and you can trust me. I am a reverend. Reverend Crazy Jack. Anyway, that's a true story, by the way. I am a reverend. Uh, <laughs> you can be, too. If you want to know, ask me how. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Timothy. Timothy says, would you take a pay cut for a better job? says, I have a good-paying job, but I don't like it. I interviewed for a similar job that pays less, but the workplace and people seem much better. Current job, 65 k Job offer, 45 k I owe for mortgage car under 2 k credit loan. We are making good headway on debt. Any direction would be much appreciated. Tim, Tim, I cannot answer this for you. I can give you some ideas, but I cannot answer this for you because you know a lot of things you didn't tell me. Let's talk about a few things here. The new place seems better. It might be. It might be better. It really might. But have you ever heard the phrase, the grass is always greener? If you're miserable where you are, where you're going might look better. That's number one. Number two, new job plays 45K. Does it really? How badly do they want you? How badly do they want you? And when you say it pays for it, is this a union-type job or something like that? Or a, a, um, a regimented wage-type job where this position pays this much, period? And this is you know the, 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 the term of promotion and the term of raise increases and tenure and stuff like that? Or is this a job with any flexibility and pay whatsoever? Because whatever the offer is, it can always be more. It can always be more. So can 45 become 55? I mean, can you split the difference here? Do you know how you will find out? You will find out if you ask. They will tell you no. They're not going to tell you no, piss off, we don't want to talk to you anymore because you asked for more money. They'll say we don't have it in the budget. We just This is it. This is all we got. I'll bet you if you tell them that, they're going to be like, well, could you do 47.5 or something? So first of all, let's negotiate this number. That's second one. And then next, we need to determine whether it really is a better environment. And, and this is what better means to me for a job. I took a much bigger pay cut than this at one time in my life. I had decided that I wanted off the road. I didn't want to be in sales anymore. And I had really developed a lot of skills with Internet marketing, and I wanted to take that to a new level. And I had learned enough and was good enough at selling that I was able to sell myself into a position basically be as a as the the... the marketing, uh, internet marketing director for a company uh, that, w that was taking clients to do this for. But they actually, it's funny, you say that, 45K is what they offered me. Uh, and in the end, that was, or actually, they offered less. So that's what I was able to negotiate with a commission on any accounts that I sold for them. So that was another way. So they weren't willing to move on the base at all. That's what they had budgeted. That's, that's it. We're done. But I said, well, um, you know, I do have a decade of sales experience. Uh, you're probably going to use me to bring clients in. If I bring a client in, can I get a commission on their on their on their business? Sure, ten percent. Okay, now we're talking. But this is why the job was better for me. One, it got me off the road, no more traveling, and two, it gave me a skill set. And even though I had the skill set, 
It put me around people that were exercising the skill set. I knew that would make me better. And it gave me credibility in my career that it wasn't, oh, you just do this in addition to your job. right? This is now your job. This gave me a title, a track record. And in one year, and in one year, I had a client leave. And I'm a sales guy. You don't leave me. right? So this girl that worked for uh, Globe Ranger went to work for a company called Sage Telecom. And she didn't tell me she was leaving. So, like I called on her like, to do an account review and an update and all. Oh, Jen's not here anymore. You can talk to so-and-so. Oh, okay, who's so-and-so? But what I'm thinking is, where did you go? So I asked Lacey, can you tell me where, you know, where she's gone or why? Oh, yeah, she got a great opportunity with a company called Sage Telecom. Oh, really? So I call her. And I went, I'm like, okay, well, then that's going to be our next customer, right? <laughs> like, you leave, and, and I have a great relationship with you, then I'm going to hire, you're going to hire me as your, uh, your, your, your marketing guy for your new company. So it turned out that's exactly what happened, and I, all of a sudden, am back making over 100 k a year in one year's time. Because the move was strategic. The move was strategic. And so better to me means better opportunity long term. And I also tell you, 20K is a big pay cut. And in, unless this thing's going to dry up and go away if you don't act fast, try living with the pay cut for a month. Figure out what your new pay would be, and when your paycheck comes in every month, just put that money into a, a savings account as though it didn't exist, and see if you can really live that way. Because sometimes even if it's a better job, it's not the right time. So you've got to figure all this out for yourself, Tim. And a lot of times when people ask questions like this, it's almost like they want you to give them a pass, and I can't do that for you. Because this is, it, 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 it's also like, so 20K, well, what if you were making 125 and you were going to go 105? I would be like, if, I really, if you really think you're going to be happy and there's anything new, you're going to learn this at all, it's not a big deal. Because you still have a very significant income. You know, 65K is not bad. 45K is the edge, to me, in modern America today, of, of really being able to do what you want in the world. So I, I think you really need to think about how this is going to impact you and your family. Um, and can we squeeze more money out of the new offer? And what makes it better? If it's just they seem like they're nicer people to work with? Okay, real quick story here. So this guy dies, and he is like standing at the pearly gates at St. Peter. And St. Peter's like, well, you know, you're kind of on the border line here. And really it could go either way. And do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? And the guy goes, well, uh, I, my instinct is I want to go to heaven. And St. Peter says, you actually have a choice and you got to see both of them. And so he goes to heaven and everything's pretty nice but pretty melancholy. You know, like nothing really going on exciting. It's just everybody seems pretty happy. And he goes down to hell and this demon meets him and he takes him like to this, this banquet and they're partying and all. And, you know, it's, it's like just this raucous, you know, environment. And, and it seems more like his thing. He says, I know you're going to be surprised, but I'm, I'm going to choose hell. So he ends up in hell and it's horrible. And, and, uh, so he finally gets to meet Satan himself and Satan says, well, it's a recruiting day. And, and that's, that's an old joke in, in sales for, for jobs. It, the job always looks best on the day they recruit you. And, and there's some truth to it. And the other truth is to it, you're worth more money to them the day they're recruiting you than you will be the day after you've signed on with them. So get every penny you can without looking like you're being greedy. Don't look like a gold digger or whatever. But, be like you know, look, I make 65000 a year right now. It's really a big pay cut, but I really like the opportunity. Is there anything we can do to move that salary or any incentive program that you can put on it 
that would make it easier for me to make this adjustment. That's a very well-reasoned way to put that. Whereas, you know, like I just want more money or I'm getting 65 now, so if you don't give it to me, I'm not coming. Those things will not work. And they're not very well-reasoned arguments because you're not worth more money to me just because somebody else is giving it to you right now. I'll tell you to stay where you're at if you put it that way. But if you make it well-reasoned, I might go back and sharpen the pencil and come back with 50 right out of that or 50 plus an incentive program or a probationary period and an automatic raise. So they say, well, we can see about a raise in six months. No, 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 no. I want benchmarks, and if the benchmarks are met, the raise is automatically triggered at 180 days, whatever it is. That's how that, there's none of this, we'll talk about a raise. No, 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 uh-uh. Because that always ends up, well, you know, right now we can't. No, no. You put that in as an automatic triggered event based on benchmarking, if that's the approach. We can only do 45 because we're not familiar with your work and whatever. Well, then uh, mandatory uh, bi-monthly reviews over the first six months, and if they're all positive, I get my raise to whatever. That's that's how that goes. you got to negotiate tough or you're going to get – Guys, it's, it's always the case that employers will pay the worker the minimum amount to get them to do their work sufficiently and that workers will look for the maximum amount they can get without being seen as uh, no longer necessary. <laughs> Just human nature. Uh, this one comes from Keegan. Keegan says, Hi, Jack. I have a question for you about feeding chickens. Background, I have been wanting to get a few hens for egg production. I'm thinking either bantams or leghorns. I have never had chickens before, and in the spirit of trying to become more self-sufficient, was wondering how I could produce enough food on my homestead with all necessary nutrients to have happy, healthy birds. I plan on letting chickens roam around my backyard for at least a couple hours a day. It is also only my second year as a gardener, but I know I could grow sunflowers and high-protein seeds. I've been thinking about comfrey and alfalfa, of course, fruit, vegetable scraps, Really enjoy the show and would love to hear your thoughts on the matter. Thanks. Keegan. Keegan, don't even think this way. From the, from the, from the get-go of I want to produce all their food, no. Now, listen, my grandparents were Great Depression-era people. They did not see a chicken as anything other than an egg factory and eventually stew. The, the chicken was not, you know, like there's these in mypetchicken.com and the chick backyard chicken forms and they have like teacup chickens and they put the chicken in a suit and people have a pet chicken and they cuddle the chicken and all. My grandparents would have thought these people were grade A certified insane. And a hundred percent, we only had a few chickens. We had like four, right? And we had one goose, the, 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 the warlord goose, right? This old gander that was just mean as hell and took care of the birds pretty well. Um, so we had these four little chickens, and every single scrap went to the chickens. And if somebody had scraps that were chickenable, they went to the chicken. And the chickens ranged around, and I don't know how. My grandmother had chickens that were pretty easy on the garden area. didn't really go there. They were confined. My grandparents were to school and thought you let the chickens out for about the last hour. That way they don't get into a lot of trouble. You know, they ate a lot of clover and bugs and stuff like that. And they were in an open run, so they got a lot of bugs coming into them. Anything we cut, clippings, etc., into the chickens, and they still fed the chickens. They still fed the chickens. And this is how you evaluate your chickens' feed needs. You give them free choice feed, which means you let them have what they want. And the less they use, the more they're getting from your land. There's been a lot made of raising egg chickens with no feed, zero grain inputs. 
And everybody that's doing it successfully either has a massive amount of on-property scraps, trimmings, etc., relative to the number of chickens, or they have some sort of off-site source of, you know, spoiled produce and things like that. If you can do that, great. To me, we bring an animal into our home or onto our property. We take an animal, a chicken, that is, you know, derived from a tropical game bird. All the chickens go back to like Indonesia, Indochina, etc., these different game birds, these wild birds, the, the predecessor of the chicken, and we successful, successfully bred and characteristics in to get all these different you know chickens that we have today and what they're capable of doing. But that chicken in of itself is still a jungle fowl. It wants to live in a warm climate, not a super hot climate, a warm, humid climate with lots of shade, lots of bugs, and constant leaf litter, litter fall, fruit fall, that's where it's native to. New Jersey, Texas, Florida, Idaho, none of those places, with the exception of Florida in some ways, are like that. right? And in your, your homestead, even in Florida, probably isn't like that. The, the wild chicken lives, you know, there's billions and trillions of acres, so there's a very small number of birds per hectare. And if they are not happy, they go somewhere else. We put them in a place where they can't do that anymore. We now take responsibility for that chicken's needs. When it's hot, we have to be the ones to provide airflow and shade. When it's cold, we have to be able to provide a place to get out of the wind and get warm. And when they're hungry, we have to provide food. For the number of chickens you're talking about, the cost of food is inconsequential. It's tiny. It's minuscule. And let me tell you, unless you're the kind of people who go through a dozen eggs a day or something like that, four little bantam hens will give you more eggs than you know what you're doing with. And if you ever want to hatch some birds, you know, they go broody frequently. Uh, bantam cochrans where I have, there's times I have to push them off the nest and try to keep them going broody because I don't want them there. Um, and as far as inputs, smaller birds eat less feed. They also give you smaller eggs. Um, if you wanted maximum production on your eggs, then I would actually say something like the red or black sex links, production reds they call them, etc. Um, but they have a real big decline in their second year. Leghorns I'm not real familiar with, but they are a, it's considered a dual-purpose bird. So there's that going for you. But to me, bantams, especially with kids, they get very, very tame. Uh, they're very, very gentle birds. Um, they are less flighty as far as trying to get over things and out of things. They're less likely to, you know, you clip the wings on some of these larger birds, and they can still jump five feet in the frickin' air. So they can jump up and gra beat grab a fence and pull themselves over it. The bantams don't seem, I thought it would be the exact opposite. Since they're so little, I thought they would be able to get a lot more air, but they, they just don't, and they're a lot more controllable, in my opinion. So that's what I would look toward for your first chickens. You can always get more. Let me caution everybody on the chicken thing. Everybody I know. I'm going to get a couple chickens. I'm going to get a couple more chickens. A year later, they got 60 chickens running around. Everything's torn apart. Keep it, And they don't know what to do with the eggs. Can't get rid of them. They're selling them for a dollar a dozen, and they can't sell them because everybody else is doing it too. Start out with enough birds to provide you with the eggs that you need and the service that you want from them. Definitely grow things for them, feed them, but you can't rely on things like sunflower. Uh, it, it's a good feed. But if it makes up a large enough part of their diet, uh, the oil in it so high it causes premature molting, it can actually be very damaging. It needs to be a part of their diet. Sorghum is great 
thing to grow for chickens. I grow sorghum, I grow sunflower, things like that. And what I do is when they're ready to be harvested, I cut the top off, I hang them up, let them dry. I don't, and I don't do any work. Why am I going to do work the chicken will do? So what I'll do if I want to feed the chickens, um, sorghum, for instance, or and when I used to feed it to the ducks, I just throw the whole head in there. And they pick all the sorghum off. Same with the sunflower. You put the sunflower seed side up. First time a chicken's ever seen that, they may not know what to do. As soon as one does it, they pick it clean. So um, definitely those types of things are great. Extra greens, what have you. And you go to a restaurant, anything left over, chickens would eat. Take it in a box, bring it home, give it to them. Get a bin, throw it in there, let them compost for you. But just plan on feeding them a little bit. I mean, it's just the right thing to do. And it makes everything easier. And you can always reduce how much you're feeding them. And if they're not eating at all, you can reduce it a little bit more. And if they're not eating at all, and that's the way that you measure that. And uh, I think you'll just be happier and have happier birds if you plan on some level of feeding them. You're not going to 100% feed yourself off your land. So, you know, how self-sufficient are you when you're worried about, you know, that one extra bag of feed a month? Okay, last one from Jeremy. Jeremy says, what are your thoughts on polarized glasses for fishing? Do $200 cost the sunglasses fall into the buy ones, cry ones, or are they a waste of money? Also, what line type of the pound of line do you like for crappie? I've been looking for 10-pound braid at P-Line. Thanks for all you do, Jeremy. Let's start on the crappie. Um, I am not a big crappie fisherman. Uh, I am a firm believer in the lightest line for the job possible. So I'm going to tend toward more around the 6-pound range, 6-pound mono, though 10-pound braid is probably thinner than 6-pound mono. Uh, but I'm not a crappie guy. I, I guess the only reason you'd really need heavier line for crappie, being the size fish that they are, even some of the largest ones, is because you're pulling them out of tangles and stuff like that. So I, I don't really know. It's not my fish. I'm more of a white bass catfish, uh, bluegill kind of guy, right? So, uh, but that's so I don't see anything wrong with the line you're using. $200 sunglasses. Nope, not me. No, 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 no. Sunglasses. Way too easy to lose. Way too easy to be out in your boat. Wind comes up the wrong way. Smack your face. Bloop. Sunglasses sink. $200 down the drain. Nope. Polarized glasses, even cheap ones, work really good. Now, it might be a little different for me. I am a prescription glasses wearer. So I buy my glasses from a website called Zini Optical. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you. But all of you that wear glasses, I really recommend them. I can get a decent pair of glasses for $15. Fifteen bucks. I can get... Let me see what I pay for my polarized glasses real quick. I'll log in and check. So I can get a pair of uh, bendable memory titanium half-rim frame glasses like I like to wear uh, with a 1.5 polarized gray tint at 80% uh, for about 50 bucks. It's about $32 as an option to add to add that. And you know the, you don't have to buy frames. You have frames that are about 12 bucks. You can go below 50 bucks for a pair of prescription polarized glasses and having worn glasses my whole life it's one of those things i can never seem to keep track of it's why when i found zenny optical i was so happy about it because i found out i can buy a decent pair of glasses for like less than 20 bucks so i went and bought like six pairs and i took they come with a little case with a cleaning cloth and all and i took one of the cases never even opened it shoved it in the glove box of my truck shoved another one in the the console of my wife's vehicle you know stuck one in my tackle box They've stuck one out in the shop. And every once in a while I go buy a couple pairs of glasses. And, you know, I have a couple pairs of the, of the polarized ones. And I have 
uh, a couple pairs of the ones that are, you know, they end up costing me about like 80 bucks. They have the hydro, hydrophobic lenses and the anti-scratch and the, they have the ones that have like basically when you go outside, they tint on their own like that. I have a couple of good pairs like that. And that way, whenever I can't find my glasses, I just go to where I know a pair is. I put them on and I can find the ones I'm looking for. But I've lost glasses. I lost glasses hunting one time. I was up in a tree stand and I was uh, bow hunting and I had a, uh, a head net on. And uh, it was morning, so when I decided to get down, you know, it's about lunchtime. And I'd been there long enough for the day and thought it's just time to get down. I took my head net off. And I watched my glasses pinwheel to the ground poof, and hit the leaves. And I like I know exactly where they are. But this is mid-fall in Pennsylvania. The leaves are like a, a foot deep. I spent about 25 minutes digging through those leaves trying to find those glasses. And this is before I knew about Zini. So this was like a couple hundred dollar pair of glasses. And I never found them. Too easy to lose, too easy to break. I'm not spending any more money on glasses, including fishing glasses, than I have to. If you are the type of anal retentive person that you believe if you buy a $200 pair of fishing glasses, that 10 years from now, if I say, where are they, you will say they are over here, and they'll be there, I'm fine with it. But even the anti-scratch stuff, glasses get scratched, glasses get damaged, glasses get bent out of shape. I'm just not about it. I have yet to see a pair of glasses, especially just sunglasses, that will make me spend $200. I'd much rather go out and buy a $15, $20 pair of glasses and have them for the purpose that are intended. And before I found Zini, I was totally content to wear my standard glasses that I wear for my vision and go out and buy an $8 pair of clip-on uh, polarized lenses. You're only going to be, they're not magic. They seem like magic, but they're not magic. You're only going to be able to see underwater so good anyway. It's just not where I'm spending my extra money. This is not the garden hose, right? The garden hose, I will spend the extra 40 bucks for the better hose because I'll have it for 10 years and it will work and I won't hate my life. But, yeah, you might disagree and it's okay. Those of you that do, this is my opinion. But I'll tell you, I love Zenny Optical. And for those that are not going to go by the site, you're like, how the hell do you spell that? Uh, if you take your best shot at it, Google will, will help you find it if you put Zenny Optical in Google. But it's Z-E-N-N-I optical.com. And, uh, man, I've had so many people over the years email me and say thank you so much. People have saved hundreds of dollars on their prescription glasses. And every once in a while I'll hear from some butthurt optometrist that says, you know, that's the main way that I monetize my practice and whatever. And I'm like, you know, let me explain it to you. Um, I can buy, like, if I go to the full maxed out, everything I want in a pair of glasses for 80 bucks on Zenny Optical. Those exact same pair of glasses the last time I bought them from my ophthalmologist. And maybe they're not exactly the same, but they're the same to me. $500. You know, if they were $100, $120 versus $80, I would buy them from my ophthalmologist. I really would. $400? I'm sorry. We're done with the discussion. It, it, it's exorbitant, and it's ridiculous, and I don't need to go look at a room of 90% of the frames up there are Poindexter crap, and they're only there to lead me to the 10% that everybody picks from. By the way, on Zenny, you can upload your own picture and see what they will look like on your face if that's important to you. My philosophy in life is if you don't like me, don't look at me. That's all. You can imagine how much uh, 
how much I worry about that. Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up the day again. Uh, I want to remind you, if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, you can just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's an incredibly painless way to help us out. You can see all the products that we have reviewed, uh, classified into individual segments and things like that there. But as long as you do go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast. All right, so what do I have for you today? It's a product you are probably overly familiar with at this point. I've brought it back so many times, but there's a reason. And the reason is it's one of the best damn values that I've found. It is the Kingbow 45-watt LED grow light. These are about a 12 by 12 square full-spectrum LED grow light. Uh, the main use of these things to me is starting your plants. Uh, they're not a real high-intensity light, so you want them really close to your, your plant trays. But they're fantastic. They're under 30 bucks. And the reason I brought them around is we're getting to that point where you really probably won't be starting plants indoors much longer. So it's kind of the last hoorah of the year for that, unless you're going to be growing things indoors. Um, these things are fantastic, and I keep getting questions about lights. And it's it, I'm always back to this one. And when I find a better grow light for the money, I will recommend it. I even have recently purchased uh, this winter for myself. I have a grow tent, and I have a 600-watt Kingbow. It's like a $200 light, and I'm very pleased with what it's doing. And if you think about that, when I upgraded to an expensive light, I stuck with the Kingbow brand. That tells you how happy I am with the very large number of the 45-watt lights that I've used over the years. Those of you that saw my indoor aquaponics project this year where I overwintered my tilapia, I did three Kingbows across that 50-gallon be bed. Everything grew fantastic in there. And, and I'm more of using these for starts than growing, but it, i got to admit it worked really, really well. Uh, so check them out. They produce almost no heat. They don't draw a lot of power. They're an awesome light. And uh, they're under 30 bucks a piece, and uh, you know you're kind of at that edge where if you're going to get some plants started for this year in these more northern climates, you want to do it indoors. This would be a great way to get it done. A couple of these on a cheap plastic shelf from uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or Walmart, and you can start plenty of plants uh, for your needs. Again, get them pretty close though to the uh, the actual surface of the plants, and because they don't get hot, they don't tend to burn leaves or cause problems like that. Uh, Last but not least, our song of the day. We are going into Gender Bender Week Round 2. Gender Bender Week Round 2. And uh, this time it is songs that were originally recorded by women covered by male vocalists or male groups. Today we have one of my favorite groups of all time, Van Halen, uh, covering a song by one of my least favorite uh, artists of all time, Linda Rodstadt. Uh, you're no good. And I actually, well, with that, you might surmise that I actually like Van Halen's version of this song better. Uh, I'll tell you what I like about this song, though, in of itself. This song's about ending toxic relationships. And I think in romantic relationships, that's important. But I think in life, that's important. When you realize you're dealing with a person that's no good. And, and see, I think very few people are just truly no good as people. There's not very many people like that. There are the psychopaths and the complete total shitbags out there that are just no good, like they are a waste of skin and oxygen. Um, but most people are not no good as people. But they may be no good in your life, and you need to get rid of them. And in the second verse of the song, you get that, where she talks about how she hurt somebody else for this guy that she got rid of, or in this case, for this girl that they got rid of, in Van Halen's case, and how... You wouldn't hold it against that person that you hurt if they said you were no good. 
Which means we could all be no good to somebody for some reason. We need to identify that. And if you can repair relationships, fine. But when you truly have something toxic in your life, romantic or otherwise, treat it like cancer. Cut it out and get rid of it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.